Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Well, two weeks ago, we concluded our study of Romans chapter 7, and I I took some time really establishing for you that when Paul speaks at the end of that chapter in, in verses 14 through 25, that he's not speaking of a struggle of someone who is an unbeliever, but I, I really believe that the end of Romans chapter 7 is Paul speaking as a believer with, as he struggles, continues to struggle with indwelling sin. Paul is speaking for himself, I believe, in Romans chapter 7 as a mature Christian. It's an experience that we all can identify with. And Paul speaks in the first person, present tense, about himself as he's struggling with sin. It's not an unbeliever who who groans under the heat of the spiritual battle. It's not an unbeliever who does that. It is a believer who groans under the heat of that. It's not an unbeliever who cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It is a a believer who groans inwardly as he or she waits eagerly for the redemption of the body. I started listening to this new audio book this week entitled Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, And the book starts out in this way. You know, when you... Before you download an audiobook to, to listen to, before you purchase it, you can listen to a little sample. And when I listened to the little sample before I bought it, this is what played and it hooked me and I ended up buying the book. So this is, this is what it said in the preface here. He said, this book is written for the discouraged, the frustrated, the weary, the disenchanted, the cynical, the empty, those running on fumes, those whose Christian lives feel like constantly running up a descending escalator. I actually have this on the screen here. Those of us who find ourselves thinking, how could I mess up that bad again? It's for those, it is for that increasing suspicion that God's patience with us is wearing thin. For those of us who know God loves us, but suspect we have deeply disappointed him who have told others of the love of Christ, yet wonder if, as for us, he harbors mild resentment, who wonder if we have shipwrecked our lives beyond what can be repaired, who are convinced we've permanently diminished our usefulness to the Lord, who have been swept off our feet by perplexing pain and are wondering how we can keep living under such numbing darkness, who look at our lives and know how to interpret the data only by concluding that God is fundamentally parsimonious. It is written, in other words, for normal Christians. In short, it is for sinners and sufferers. It kind of hooked me, right? This honest, Romans 7-like intro to the book. But even though that hooked me, the reason that I wanted to read the book is because nobody wants to stay in Romans chapter 7, Right? The hope, that there is a greater hope in the Christian life. The Christian life is not a defeated and frustrating, pointless journey. No, the, the Christian 
life is full of assurance and hope that God is working all things together for our good and for his glory. And that, that's a, a promise that we find in Romans chapter 8. All right? Romans chapter 8 is one of the most beloved expressions of Christian assurance and hope in all the scriptures. About six or seven years ago, God laid it on my heart when someone challenged me to do this to memorize the entirety of Romans chapter 8. Now, if you were to quiz me on that today, I, I probably wouldn't get it word for word, but there was a time in my life when I could sit down and I could, I could from memory, tell you the entirety of Romans chapter 8. And let me tell you, that, that changed my life. It took, took me a little while to do it. I don't have the, the sharpest memory. Uh, but I, I got it done, and it, it changed my life. And I, I firmly believe that Romans chapter 8 is one of the greatest chapters in, in the entire Bible. Many people really regard it in that way. A pastor and professor by the name of Derek Thomas tells the story about a time when he was serving as an interim pastor for his church while his, the, the main guy was on a three-month sabbatical. And he decided for those three months he was going to slowly preach through the book of Romans, chapter 8. Not the book of Romans, the, the chapter of Romans 8. You know, there, there are some people who actually spend a whole year preaching through Romans chapter 8, and we're not going to do that, so don't, don't worry about that. But, we, you know, I, I would love to at some point return to Romans chapter 8 and preach through it a little more slowly. But Derek Thomas, he, when he preached through it in three months, he entitled the series, The Best Chapter in the Bible. And after the first sermon, a, a deacon came up to him. There's always a deacon, right? And, and this deacon took issue with the title of the series. And he started arguing with him. And at first, Derek Thomas thought that he was, he was joking. But suddenly he realized that he was, he was really serious. He, he felt that it was wrong to call any chapter of the Bible the greatest chapter of the Bible. Because that would somehow diminish the rest of the scriptures in some way. But Derek Thomas was like, look, buddy, chill. Right? Let's say you got two minutes to live. And the pastor comes by your bedside and he's going to read you some scripture. Where do you want it to come from? Do you want it to come from the book of First Chronicles where the first eight chapters are just a long list of names? Or do you want it to come from Romans chapter 8? And the clock's ticking. You now only have a minute and 45 seconds. Make a decision. What do you want? You know, Romans chapter 8 begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. Right? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and no separation from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in between are, are sandwiched some of the, the most sung about assurances in all of Scripture. Romans chapter 7 shows us what sanctifi sanctification looks like when we attempt it in our own strength and fail. And it, it is a part of the Christian life that we do experience the frustration of Romans chapter 7 as we're in the heat of the spiritual battle. But Romans chapter 8 shows us what sanctification looks like when we walk in the Spirit and in the power of the Spirit. 
this new life that, that God has intended for us and as God is forming us into the image of his son and bringing us ultimately to glory. And it all begins with this banner of a verse here, in, in verse 1 here. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm going to just step through this verse, kind of highlight some of the words in particular here. First, I want you to really think about the word no. I really wish that, you know, you could look at this verse in, in the original language in the Greek. I'm going to put it up here on, on the screen, and it's going to be all Greek to you, I know. <laughs> but I want you to see that. The word I have highlighted up there on the screen, the very first word, uden, is the word no. It's, it's not like in the English here, located in the middle of the sentence, Paul puts the no right at the front of the sentence. And, and this isn't the normal way to do it. He does it to emphasize the no. No condemnation. And not only is this the word no, I mean, this isn't the usual word for no. This word actually means something more like, um, it means not one, if you were to translate it literally. Not one or not at all. It's a really emphatic way to, to say what he's trying to say. You know, the gospel isn't proclaiming a mere reduction of sentence. As if we had an eternal sentence and we're shaving off a few years, right? We're talking here about no condemnation, none at all, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And while we're at it, let's talk about condemnation. What is this word condemnation. It's a forensic or a legal term, and it's the opposite of justification. We've been talking a lot about justification here in the book of Romans. Justification is the declaration uh, that, that God declares over us who are in Christ that we are righteous, not just forgiven, not just okay, but, but declared righteous. And condemnation really is the exact opposite of that, right? It is really, you could say, a declaration of guilt. It's referring here to the wrath of God that's going to be poured out in the last judgment. In fact, the, the Greek word here for condemnation was translated into Latin, and then from Latin it came to the English, and it's where we get the, the English word damnation. Most of us have probably never felt the bitter sting of a proclamation of condemnation. We've never stood before a, a, an actual courtroom with a, a judge up front declaring over us condemnation for something that we've done. That's probably, for most of us, that's probably never happened for something, anything other than maybe a, a, a traffic ticket or something like that. <laughs> And so we imagine from that that if no human court is going to do that, then surely uh, I, I, I would have a hard time believing that I would receive such a harsh judgment from the heavenly courtroom. But God has a higher, higher standard, doesn't he? God has a higher standard than even the human courts. God's, God's demands, God's standard is absolute perfection. And I, I know I say this over and over again, but it, it, it is such a truth 
That when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, how many sins did it take for them to lose paradise and to be kicked out of the garden and to usher in sin and death and guilt and all the rest? It just took one sin, one act of rebellion ushered us as a human race into a position of blessedness in the Garden of Eden out into the wilderness in a position of death and condemnation. Right? In fact, Paul only uses this word condemnation three times in all of his letters. One time is right here in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and the other two times are back in Romans chapter 5, verses 16 and 18. I want to just read, reread for you Romans 5, 18, where Paul says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. I want to remind you that this verse back in, in 5.18 teaches you that in Adam, when you're born, because you're a descendant of Adam and Eve, you are automatically in Adam. You automatically stand condemned before God. Before you ever even do one single thing wrong, you are already in a position in Adam of condemnation before God. And then on top of that, in that position of condemnation in Adam, that one trespass that Adam committed, you then multiply trespasses of your own. You commit trespasses because of the one trespass in Adam. You are condemned in Adam, but then you, you then go on and com commit on your own condemnable acts that God will and must punish. And it, it, it's hard news to hear, it's hard news to deliver, but we must hear it if we're to be warned. Yet, as soon as you come to, to hear this and to know this truth that we've been talking about at length here in the book of Romans, that in Adam, that you stand under a, a sentence of condemnation, as soon as you come to hear that and you come to believe it and you come to know it, you then become ripe to hear and to understand Romans 8.1 for the good news that it was intended to be. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You must be transferred out of your natural-born state of condemnation in Adam and into the glorious, blessed position of being in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Right, so everything I'm, I'm saying today has to be couched and understood in those terms. This, the, this, this little prepositional phrase here at the end of the sentence, it's for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus? You say, well, how does one come into Christ Jesus? How does one change positions? Well, it's simply by repentance of your sins and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God exchanges that declaration of condemnation for one of justification, one for guilty to righteous, simply by faith, not by works. And coming to understand this truth as I've just described it, coming to believe Romans 8.1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, 
Coming to believe that for the first time marks your justification. It marks your salvation. It's how someone comes to be saved. And we've been talking about that a lot. But I think what makes this particular expression of this truth so beloved of Christians, and to me personally, is the way Paul applies this truth here in this context. He applies this truth of justification, of no condemnation, immediately following Romans chapter 7. As Paul is describing this very personal experience with indwelling sin and struggling with with feeling wretched because of his indwelling sin, and even crying out, who will save me? It is then that Paul comes out and says, there is therefore now no condemnation. And that brings me to the, these little, two little words here, therefore now. Commentator Douglas Moose said this, he said, the combination of the words therefore now is an emphatic one, marking that what follows is a significant conclusion. And in a lot of ways, Romans 8.1 is summarizing this whole section of the, the letter of Romans that we're in, chapters 5 through 8. In fact, I've got a little bit of a visual here for you this morning. I don't expect you to memorize this. If you want me to email this to you, I will later. But this, uh, this is a, a little outline of chapters 5 through 8 that I, I found in my commentaries that I agree with. Chapter 5, we really begin... Paul begins talking about suffering with assurance of, of future glory, as, as he says back in chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in the rest of the chapter, he begins to talk about being in Adam or being in Christ, and, and that our assurance is based on the work of Christ and being in Christ. And then in chapter 6, he goes even further and he talks about how the, the slavery to sin, to sin and the law is broken. And in chapter 7, he speaks of the weaknesses of the law. And now in chapter 8, he begins to step back out of this and kind of return back to what he was talking about in chapter 5. And it all begins here with this first verse. There is therefore now no condemnation. In a lot of ways, Paul is pointing all the way back to chapter 5 here and sort of returning to what he was saying. That the basis of our assurance now is not only in the work of Christ, but in the ministry of the Spirit. And then he's going to gloriously end in chapter 8, verses 18 through 39, by returning to exactly where he was at the beginning of chapter 5 in speaking of suffering with assurance of future glory. This is the Christian life here in this little outline. And it's couched with assurance and so in a lot of ways, we can, we can say that, that Paul is summarizing this whole section of Scripture. In a lot of ways, we can say that Romans 8.1 is a summary of the entire letter of Romans to this point, isn't it? And we can even press it farther, and we can say this verse really summarizes the, the entirety of the Scriptures, which is just another way to say that it's a summary of the Gospel. But with all that said, I, I think people often lose sight of the fact that Paul is most naturally drawing a conclusion of what he has just finished talking about in the nearest context at the end of Romans chapter 7. 
You've got to remember that the, the chapter divisions and the verse divisions are, are not in the original. As Paul was writing this, he, he wasn't writing in, in verses 24 and 25, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body? Let me put a little 25 there. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. All right, new chapter, let me put a big eight and kind of indent things. No, Paul didn't do that. He was writing a letter, and it, there, there weren't any of these divisions. And so I, I think we really need to see Romans 8.1 following so closely on the heels of what he has just said. He's just expressed his wretchedness and his desire for God to save him in thanksgiving that, that it is Christ Jesus who will deliver him from this body of death. And then in 25b, he says, So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation. Right? This makes it such a, a precious truth for those of us who are struggling day in and, and day out, just like the Apostle Paul with our indwelling sin. This assurance is intended for the Christian, not at, necessarily just at the outset of his salvation, but as he's going on in progressive sanctification and he stumbled and he fell this week and he needs to hear, he needs to hear, hey, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, and the flow of the thought here is basically, as, as one commentator, Thomas Schreiner, put it, he said, the flow of the thought here suggests that the forensic is the basis of the transformative. If I were to put that in my own words, I, I would say basically that what he means here is that the assurance of no condemnation is the foundation for the Spirit's work of transformation in your life. You need that assurance that there is no condemnation as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We're not to, to go on considering ourselves in the spirit of fear and slavery before the Lord. No, we have been adopted as sons and daughters. And we come to him now in a new spirit. In the spirit of the living God who comes and takes up residence within us. And it is this assurance of no condemnation for us that becomes the foundation for, for the spirit's work of transformation in our life. And I think the more that you come to grips with and, and, and wrestle with and believe this declaration, the greater hope you will have as you work out your salvation day in and day out. You, beloved child of God, need to routinely hear this proclamation in your life too. And it is in the security and assurance of this good news that God's Spirit invades your life and transforms it over time. And so let's talk about four points of application here just as we close. First, I want to challenge you to know Romans 8.1, to know it and even to memorize it. Christian, do you have this beloved verse memorized? I don't mean kind of just vaguely referencing, it. oh, well, it says somewhere that there's no condemnation for us. I mean, do you know it word for word? Do you have it hidden in your heart? When you're laying on 
your hospital bed? Do you need me to come alongside of you to read Romans 8 to you? Or can you pull it out of your heart even if your arms can't move to grab your Bible? Is it that close to you? Can you pull it out and cherish it and, and contemplate it? If not, you need to know it before it can impact you. You need to know it, not just as an abstract truth, but you need to know it as a precious promise that you feed your soul upon. I hope that there are many here who will memorize Romans 8.1, not, not just Romans 8.1, but maybe then even going on and hearing the similar challenge that I heard once and accepted, that there is no greater chapter in the Bible to memorize than Romans chapter 8. Let me challenge you to do that. I think you can do it. It'll bless you for the rest of your life. You've got to know it if you want to be impacted by it. You've got to memorize it. You've got to hide it in your heart. Secondly, you've got to believe it. Pray that you will actually believe it. See, this is one of those things that we can know in our heads, but we can struggle to know in our hearts. Now, I've rather foolishly boasted here several times this morning that I, I've memorized this chapter of the Bible at one point in my life. But now I, I have to humble myself and confess that though I have hidden it in my heart, I don't always believe it. I see in my life many times a failure to believe it. If I truly believe that there is a banner over my life, that there is no condemnation, then what business do I ever have being joyless and depressed and gloomy and fearful? Right? So what if I live the rest of my life in suffering or in disappointment? If for all eternity, there's no condemnation for me and I'll spend forever with the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I, I want to be like Peter in Acts chapter 12, sleeping as he's in prison. I want to be like the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 16, singing in prison. So much so that everybody in the prison wonder, what is wrong with this guy singing in prison? Peter and Paul in prison, even though they were imprisoned physically, their hearts had been set free by this truth. You know, trusting in, in God's grace and in God's grace alone, it becomes particularly difficult in two situations, doesn't it? It becomes difficult when we fail, when we sin. It's difficult to believe God's grace will continue to cover your, your failure and your sin that you've struggled with again and again. And secondly, it continues to be difficult when we suffer. If there's some sort of sickness or illness or suffering of some kind in your life, it's difficult to to believe Romans 8.1 in those moments. Let's talk a little bit about when we fail. You know, when we fail, the, the tempter, the accuser of our souls kind of gets up in our faces and, and he wants us to live in, in defeat and despair, wants to drag us down even further. And I think that's a universal experience of all believers. I think uh, one person who, who really famously 
struggled with this was, was the reformer, Martin Luther. He really felt this struggle keenly. And Luther tells of a, a dream that he had in his life in, in which he was visited at night by Satan. And Satan brings to him this record of his own life written with his own hand. It's as if he had unrolled the scroll and it was written with his own hand, everything that he, everything that he had done. And the tempter says to him, is it, is it true? Did you write this? And the poor, terrified Luther had to confess it was all true. Scroll after scroll was unrolled, and the same confession was wrung from him again and again. And at length, the evil one prepared to take his departure, having brought Luther down to the lowest depths of abject misery. But suddenly the reformer turned to the tempter and said, It is true, every word of it, but right across it all, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Sinclair Ferguson talked about the importance of remembering the truth of Romans 8.1, especially when we fail. He said, similarly, he said, Satan has a way of reminding, of our, reminding us of our sins, or our own guilty consciences bring them to the surface. Remember how this was true of David in Psalm 25. In later life, he's crying out to God and saying, Oh God, the sins of my youth, please don't remember them. And you could really work your way through the whole of scriptures and interviewing men and women, saying to them, Now why is this important to you? And here would be Noah arising and saying, this is important to me because the great blemish on my life is that after all that God did for me in the flood and that glorious deliverance and his marvelous covenant promise, I lay drunk in my tent and that sin haunts me and it will haunt me to my dying day. And the gospel comes and says, Noah, there is not one condemnation for you because the penalty for your sin has been paid in Jesus Christ. Or Isaiah, as he says, the very things that seem to other people to be my righteousnesses, my ability in preaching that makes me such an honored prophet in the presence of God, I know to my shame that my sin has woven its way into the very best and strongest gift that God has given to me. And I cry out, O oh God, I am a man of unclean lips. And at times I'm almost paralyzed to speak because I know I use the very best of God's gifts in me for my own self-aggrandizement. Isaiah, there is not one condemnation for you. Or what about Simon Peter? How could he ever get over that night? How could mortal man ever get over a night in which, with four-letter words, he had blasphemed the Savior who was on his way to the cross? The Savior so clearly molested and demeaned and to deny that you ever knew him. Peter, there is not one condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And on and on and on you could go through the scriptures and through history until it came down to yourself, bowed down beneath a load of sin by Satan sorely pressed. What are you going to say to him? My friend, there's, there's perhaps no sharper weapon to unsheathe in those moments of our accuser's condemnation than Romans 8.1, that there is therefore now no condemnation. So get up and look to him again when you fail. Secondly, when you suffer. Not only do we need Romans 8.1 when we fail, but we also need it when we suffer, and all of us will suffer. We will. All of us are going to get sick and die someday. All of us are going to come up against some kind of suffering that's going to cause us to wonder, why is God allowing this in my life? And what are you going to preach to your heart in those days? As Derek Thomas asked, what do you want read at your hospital bedside? Well, those who have suffered before us have strengthened their faith with this truth, no condemnation in Christ. Paul's going to say later in Romans chapter 8 that in Christ, God is for you and not against you. And you say, I know, uh, Pastor, I, I know this, I know this. But still, do you believe it? Do you believe it? And will you believe it through failures and through sufferings that are sure to come? You know, living under grace in these circumstances can feel kind of like one of those crazy trust exercises. Have you ever done one of those? Where you sort of just, you have your two friends standing back there with their arms out like this, right? They, a lot of times businesses do these things as like team building exercises, you know, and then you got to stand there like this with your arms crossed and just fall straight back and trust they're going to catch you, right? It's supposed to build teamwork. It's a crazy trust exercise. Don't do it. I don't know if you've ever done those, but um, no, they, they do, they do, they're fun and they do teach you to trust other people. But, um, you know, living and in, in trusting in, in God's grace is kind of like that, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're basically saying, hey, there's nothing I can do. Bind your, you're binding your own hands and you're falling backwards into the arms of Christ. And you're trusting he's going to catch you. And I, I, the temptation, if you ever do this, in fact, if you want to do this after the service, we could set it up for you so you could try it. But as you're falling back, the big temptation is to, at the last minute, go like this. <laughs> you know? Self-reliance kicks in. But we, we must not do that to ourselves. We must not trust in ourselves. Right? The call to believe in the gospel of Rome, in, in this verse here, that there is no condemnation, we are putting all of our trust in what Jesus has done in, in his declaration of no condemnation over us. There's nothing you can do to overcome condemnation. You must only trust. You must not catch yourself. You must fall in faith completely into the arms of Christ. So pray, brothers and sisters, pray that you will believe this truth. Not just know it, but believe it. Thirdly, we're to share it. I think once you know it and you memorize it and you believe it and you cherish it within you, 
how can you not share it? How can you not share it? We have, this is good news. I mean, it makes you want to kind of just shout it at people. Like walking, if, if that was socially acceptable, you'd just be like kind of shout, hey, there's no condemnation in Christ. Like you just want to let people know, right? Shout it from the mountaintops. We, we need not be ashamed of such good news. 1 Peter 3, 14 and 15 says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. But have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And far too often we are, are silent, far too often we are ashamed. We need to share this truth. And fourthly and finally, sing it. And sing it. You know, when you, when you really get Romans 8.1, not only do you want to share it and shout it <laughs> at other people, but you find, I think, just that, that speaking these truths contained in this chapter are, are not sufficient. You, you want to sing it. There's a great little line in the, the Christmas movie, Elf, where the, the main character, Elf, the elf in the, in the character in the movie... He shouts out, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. It's probably my favorite line in that movie. You know, somehow mere speech is not sufficient to express the love and joy of our hearts contained in, in these verses. I could quote to you so many hymns and, and songs. Horatio Spafford's, It Is Well With My Soul, my sin, oh, the joy of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. You know, I had it pointed out to me this week that Muslims don't sing when they get, gather to worship their God. But Christians, we sing, Right? In the, in the Muslim religion, that there, there's no assurance. There's no assurance of no condemnation. And there, there's very little joy. There's very little reason to sing. But as Christians, we have a reason to sing. And if we don't praise him, the very rocks would cry out. John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, penned another less familiar hymn. I've already kind of alluded to it this morning. It goes like this. Bowed down beneath a load of sin by Satan sorely pressed. By war without and fears within, I come to thee for rest. Be thou my shield and hiding place that sheltered near thy side. I may find my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. O wondrous love to bleed and die, to bear the cross and shame, that guilty sinners such as I might plead thy gracious name. Or Charity Bancroft's Before the Throne of God Above. We sang that this morning already. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. We're going to close our time together this morning by singing And Can It Be, a Charles Wesley hymn. I want you to notice the fourth verse of this hymn. 
that alludes to Romans 8.1, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. No condemnation. Know it, memorize it, believe it, share it, sing it. This is just the beginning. Let's pray.